Hey, Alistair. Welcome to the show. Thank you for the hey. Thanks for having me. It's, it's, it's my privilege to talk to you today, so I really appreciate it. Um, usually when I talk to somebody, I talk about uh, the earliest context that they have of their life. But I want to talk to you about uh, about the book, and I usually don't start with the book. So, uh, But I want to just make a change today. So over the years, you have um, co-authored, I think, a, a few books. Like Some of them were like really influ- influential and you know, went on to do great all around the world. Has there been a particular concept um, or an idea that challenged you, that challenged your own beliefs during your research and writing process? I think the thing that I experienced the most cognitive dissonance with is I tell everybody else that they shouldn't believe themselves. They should get out of the room. They should go talk to people, that their idea is not as cool as they think, that they should go and test whether there's demand before building something, which is like the core lesson of lean analytics, really. And I'm terrible at doing that myself. I think we all love to build a thing. We all love the feeling of creation. And it's very easy to create, but if you create something without having confirmed demand beforehand, that's called a hobby. Like unless it has a, you should start with a business model and then you should de-risk the business model and then you should build a product. Um, I was talking to Harley Finkelstein at Startup Fest. Startup Fest is this big tech event in Montreal we run each summer. And the president of Shopify, I got to interview him and he was like, look, we used to build a product and then go find a market for it. But today we create an audience and then figure out what to sell it. Like Mr. Beast has feastables, right? He sells candy and junk food, but that's because he built an audience and then he's pretty passionate about snacks. And he, so, but what I found most interesting in that sentence was the shift that Harley made. I said market, he said audience. And I think we're in this world where the line between market and audience is blurring. We've, you know, digital has taken away all of the connection, all of the middlemen. Now a person can go straight to the consumer, not just to promote their product, but to take payment, to deliver the digital good, to offer support, to offer upselling and, 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 uh, to resell and all that stuff. So this channel has changed and we still think of it as like product market fit, but we've ignored the importance of the medium and I'm terrible at that. Okay. Yeah. That's very interesting. How do you build an audience? Like if you were to do it, how would you do it? I, this is a thing I struggle with myself. I have dozens of people who are like, dude, every time you say something or post something, I'm really excited. And I have, I am terrified of actually doing it. Um, the one thing that I'm starting to do now, uh, is, and, and most of the people I know are a literal audience because I've been running conferences for a while. You know, honestly, those are people that I engage with and I meet over time. Um, over the years, I have run a conference for my friends. It's called Bit North uh, because it happens a little bit north of Montreal. Uh, I recently ran one called Bit West in Berkeley. And it's basically 50 or fewer people who show up and everybody gives a talk on something that's not their job. And then we party. We do it over a whole weekend and it's amazing. Now there's a, there's like a WhatsApp channel of about 200 people who've been over the years. Cause you can't do more than 50 people. Cause that's the most talks you can get through in a day. Um, and the way I'm starting to feel comfortable publishing content is to say, I'm just making this for my friends. Like I'll write, I'll record something. Hey guys, I learned something. This is the thing I learned. So I'll give you an example. Um, one of my co-authors, Sean power is, uh, doing a startup that's music based. Um, and one of his co-founders was a guy at Beatport. I like to DJ. 
And I've never understood why when I put a mix that I make onto SoundCloud, sometimes it gets taken down, sometimes it doesn't. But it turns out that if I use a song that I bought off iTunes for like 99 cents, that's a mainstream song in the mix, it gets taken down right away. If I use a song that I bought off Beatport, which costs $2.50, which is EDM, never gets taken down. So I was like, is there a licensing thing? And he goes, no. The DJ world knows that their song has like a lifespan of six months, unless you're like a timeless track, like, you know, Sandstorm or Sasha's Expander or something. Everybody knows it gets played a lot. You're going to make almost all your plays in the first six months. So when the artist gets that message saying, would you like to take this track down? They go, no, I want to leave it there because that's how other people learn about it. So I'm like, I want to interview this guy because this has bothered me a long, a long time. And I found the guy who knows and I'm like, oh man, I couldn't really publish that. And then I thought, you know what? My group of friends from BitNorth would find that interesting. So sure, I'll record that. I'll put it on YouTube and I'll tell them. And if the only thing that happens is my friends see it, that's fine. And I think that's how I get over this imposter syndrome. I'm still working through this, which is how do I like just make it for my friends? And if other people want to listen in, that's fine. And I think that's a shift where we used to say like, I have market segmentation. Well, that was segmentation when was, was when I was figuring out how to push my message out. We live in a world of search where people go, I'm interested in electronic music. Okay, they come across this thing. So you have to kind of lean into the idea that we are no longer pushing things out. The world is pulling it or algorithms are pulling it. And so you put stuff out there that you're passionate about. I think that that mix of authenticity and speaking to friends, you just make a thing for your friends and and then it doesn't feel as creepy as like, who the hell am I? Why am I streaming something? Usually, you know, when I talk to somebody who has this but this big of an exposure, creating a content, especially coming out, coming out live and just talking about a whole lot of things is not a problem for them. Yeah, but I have almost crippling imposter syndrome. I mean, that's the other side of the Dunning-Kruger effect, right? Like the Dunning-Kruger effect says people overestimate their expertise and they don't know something. I'm lucky enough to have talked to a lot of smart people. I know how stupid I am. Like I talk to wizards. And most of my job is teaching muggles. So I am at best Hagrid. Okay. Usually it's the other way out. So one of the questions that I want to ask you, which is like further down in the interview uh, that I had was um, when it comes to go-to-market strategy, so just throwing it out here at the beginning, when it comes to go-to-market strategy, you could go to LinkedIn. And uh, I don't know how many people are on LinkedIn, like 800 million, something like that. Like that's the total user count is. Feels like a billion people know how to perfect the how to perfectly, you know, uh, plan a go-to-market strategy. But not a lot of people actually do know how to, you know, perfectly plan a go-to-market strategy. So it's just like, you know, people are pretending to know a whole lot about things, but they actually don't know. Yeah, LinkedIn feels like a whole bunch of people shoving business cards at one another. It's not exciting. Yeah. It's gotten better <laughs> it's now that people exciting. have banned in other places. Yeah. So I think, yeah. let's pick apart the world, the word go-to-market strategy. Okay, let's um, do that. First of all, the best definition of a strategy that I've ever heard is a plan for how to win. Like tactics are the steps you take, but a strategy is just a plan, have a plan for how to win. What are you going to do to win? And when I talk to startups these days, the team's important, the product's important, but the real question is how do you change the behavior? How do you capture the attention and use that to change the behavior of a lucrative target market? So when I talk to a founder, I'm like, what are you going to do to change the behavior of a target market that no one else has done before. That that's if you can't answer that, I don't care how good your technology is, right? And so go to market strategy. Well, go to market implies you're not already at the market. 
which as I said, is kind of a mistake. You should already be part of your market because you're an audience to them. Whether that's just, uh, let me give you a concrete example. There was a conference called Lean UX a few years ago. Lean UX asked me to speak at it. And I said, what are you going to pay? And they said, well, your flight and we'll give you a good bottle of scotch. Literally, we'll give you a bottle of scotch. I said, okay, well, you know, Lean Analytics had just come out. I'm eager to get some visibility on it. I like New York. Let's go. Then I asked them what they did. And they said, well, we wanted to run the whole conference using the Lean Startup model. So if you're not familiar with Lean Startup, and I know you've talked to Ben about Lean Analytics, uh, so you may want to, anybody who's listening to this might want to go listen to that because he's way smarter than me. Um, But Lean Analytics and the Lean Startup model says, figure out what the biggest risk is and then get rid of that risk as soon as possible. So what do you think is the biggest risk in running a conference? People not showing up. Right. Not showing up. Bums in seats. Yep. What's the first thing conference organizers do? Book multiple guests in case Book one of the guests show up. in a venue. Yeah. Book guests in a venue. Is there any risk that someone won't rent you a room? No. There's people whose job is literally to rent you a space, right? And you yep. can probably get speakers. They may not be good, but you can get speakers. How come we do this stuff that's not risky, like booking speakers in a venue, and then we leave the risky stuff, like do you have an audience until the end? That's stupid but we all do it. So what these guys did is they said, if we can make a mailing list that has a thousand subscribers, then we will go to step two. Step two, we'll mail our mailing list and say, we're thinking of running an event on one of these two weekends within 25 miles of downtown New York. Will you come? Yes, no. And if you want to come, you're going to give us your credit card. If we don't do it, we'll give you your money back. Still no risk. They got 300 people to say yes. Then they called people like me and said, will you come to New York? Because the next risk is, can we afford the speakers, right? We said, enough of us said yes, right? Then they went and said, okay, we're going to pick a venue that can have 300 people. And we're going to pick a date. Okay, they checked the date. They checked the venue. They started selling tickets. They sold 400 more. Then they knew how nice of an event they could run and so on. Then they picked a venue and they told all 700 people it's going to be at this date and time. You have like 20 or 48 hours to cancel your ticket. A few people canceled, but not a lot. And then they ran the event. At no point was there a risk. So they went to their market, but they went and built an audience first, right? So that word, go-to-market strategy. First of all, you should already be in your market. You got to be researching it. You got to be knowing it. You got to be reading the subreddits it's in or chiming in on the threads that it's talking about or whatever that thing is that you do. And so you're not going to the market. Second of all, it's not a market. It's an audience. And third of all, it's a strategy. It's a plan to, for how to win. What are you going to do that nobody else is doing, which will give you an unfair advantage so you can capture attention and turn it into profitable demand? And none of that is properly reflected in the marketing you learn at university. There, it's all about product market fit, and it's all about value chain analysis and Porter's five forces. And that's great, but no. Go-to-market strategy should be a plan for how to win by doing something novel and unexpected that gives you an unfair advantage with the audience who cares about the product or service you're going to offer. That's simple. It's not simple. It's very hard to do. It should be, I believe that half of the job of any startup founder should be solving that problem. The features are nice. Like product features are great. Features are one way to change people's behavior, but they're not the only way. And they're usually the hardest way. I was listening to somebody, uh, he was from India and he built a huge billion dollar product or something like that. And then he said something very similar to what you were saying. And he was like, solve the distribution, then build a product. Well, solve the demand. Distributions. Yeah. But if you're delivering a digital good, 
than digital channels that are direct to consumer conflate the promotion, the acquisition, like all of Dave McClure's pirate metrics thing, right? That, that idea of like, um, awareness, activation, revenue, referral, and retention, that's all done digitally. And that's a big change that for, for, unless you're dealing with consumer packaged goods, but even then we have logistics tools, you have a platform like Shopify that takes care of all that stuff if you throw it in. Do you think uh, when a founder, you know, he just starts to build something and the idea feels nice. I think every, everybody thinks that every idea is just the next unicorn or like whatever. Do you think products matter the most or marketing matters the most? Marketing, 100% marketing. Because how do you know what product to build? Yeah, I mean, look, I used to have a t-shirt I wore to VC events that said, your mom is not a valid test market. Um, it's great to get your friends and family to start with things, right? And that's when you decide if something is more than a passion project. But like having a business plan is stupid at the outset, but you need a business model. A business model is a hypothesis for how you will add enough value to something that you will extract a profit you can reinvest into the business and eventually pay yourself. Mm -hmm. If you were to, uh, considering all the things, all the successes that you have over the period of time, um, you know, we'll talk about year one labs and we'll talk about, you know, acquisition and stuff like that. But considering all the things that you know now, if you were to go back like 20 years ago, how would you start any any business at all? Well, I mean, I started a company called Coradiant. And with my okay. lifelong friend, Eric Packman, we had been building like BBSs together when we were 15. For you kids in the room, a BBS is a website before there was the internet. You dialed up to it and the text basically came in as slowly as ChatGPT. So it's like, like when I see ChatGPT scrolling by, I'm like, oh, that's like my old 300 baud modem. That's how old <laughs> I am. And, um... Eric and I started this company called Coradiant, and we started as a managed service provider, which means we were running websites for people. Uh, we closed big funding because we needed a lot of infrastructure, and it cost a ton of money. In fact, we gave away more than half the company because we needed like $20 million of hardware. And we were competing with LoudCloud and SiteSmith and so on. And we How, went, uh, how long that was ago? Sorry, sorry, so it was 2001. Uh, at the time, it was the largest Series A financing in Canadian history. And That's what I was thinking about, you know, in, in, in early yeah. 2000, 20 million was like. It was a lot. And this was after the bubble burst. So it was painful. But, um, you know, we were counter cyclical in that the, all these tech companies were losing money and we were like, we can help you share. We, we create shared services. So it was an early version of cloud computing, right? I used to run cloud connect and stuff. Um, and then we figured out that what people needed was the, there were three ways to tell if your website was working, Right. One is you could test the website yourself and see if it worked, but that doesn't mean it's working for other people. It just means it's working for you. Um, the second is you could look at the machines and see how busy they were. So is my computer CPU at hundred percent is a problem. And the third is to watch the actual users and web analytics will show you what those people did, but it doesn't show you if they could do it. Like what if someone's trying to get to your website and they're stuck in like a redirect loop or they get a 500 error? You don't know. Turns out that's a real problem. And so we built this product called TrueSight that literally sniffed the wire and reconstructed every user's session. So you could see um, round trip time and delays and all this low level internet gobbledygook that most people didn't understand that was in the operators. Like the operations people knew about that. The operations people knew that latency was high, but they didn't know what the user experience was. They didn't know who was affected. And the analytics people knew you know, somebody wasn't buying, but they didn't know why. And we realized that you could stitch those two things together. 
and we created what became a new product category called real user monitoring. And there were four or five companies, uh, Adlex, Leaf, that were competing in that space. Eric built the first TrueSight box um, as a prototype in a few weeks. Um, I remember him, and this is like almost the legendary story. We were at Interop, um, which was the big networking trade show at the time. And I was out talking to VCs. I actually had to take a photo of all these investors so I could make an expense report because it was a really expensive dinner. So I had, I had them all stand there and labeled the photo. Like this guy was the VP of networks at Goldman Sachs or whatever. Um, and then, uh, Eric was in his hotel room in Vegas. He had stuffed some socks into the fire alarm so he could finish soldering the device so he could take it to the show the next morning. Like this is, you know, garage level stuff. And we won best of show. It was huge, very, very big, but that was the thing we should have built. So if I could go back in time and tell, I don't know, 25 years younger Alistair, I'd be like, dude, don't start the managed service provider. Sit down with Eric and build this little thing. I don't know whether I would have known, we would have known to build TrueSight unless we had spent three years running other people's websites and realizing that was the blind spot. So like I needed to waste the money in order to have the user experience to figure out that that's the thing I needed to do. Amazing. What a great story. Um, so Alistair, tell us about the earliest context of your life that you have and how those early years shaped whoever you are today. <laughs> I got a good story for you. Uh, when I was a very little kid, I was kind of miserable, um, cause I was a jerk. I was like a smart ass. Both of my parents were scientists. I was born in England. I went to school early. Um, and I remember going, so my, my dad was a pretty remarkable scientist. He was the father of modern parasitology. Like he wrote book, he wrote his first book at 18 and it was a textbook for when he was in university. Like he was very smart. Wow. Um, he died at 39 went back to school at 35 to get an MD in two years, like very smart. Right. I was, uh, we, my family moved to Florida so he could go to school and the education system was terrible. Uh, we were still learning the alphabet and I'd been reading small print books for like five years. So my parents said, this is stupid. We're going to take all of our insurance savings and we're going to invest them in Alistair, go to boarding school in England. So I kind of liked boarding school and I would invent games that would be very popular and everyone would forgot I had invented them. So one year, um, we started having these contests where we'd make parachutes. We'd fold the parachutes, we'd tie them to a rock with string, throw them in the air and whoever's stayed up the longest won. And there's a trade-off here because if you have a heavier rock, then you go up higher, but you fall down faster and so on. And this took over the recess, like the park, like wildfire, everybody was doing it. And this boarding school was pretty nice. Um, my dad had gone there. And so one of the students came back at, um, after spring break, uh, and he, it turns out his dad was like a, a, someone in the Saudi air force and had, had like an aeronautical engineer make a proper parachute that nobody could beat. Like we were using napkins and rocks and he had like a ball bearing and some silk. And I was, we were like, dude, that's not fair. He's like, yeah, but I'm going to win. So I realized two things. The first is. It's amazing what can get done if nobody cares who gets credit. Like these games that I would invent took over the schoolyard. I'd start treasure hunts and stuff. And, and like, I wasn't popular, but I survived because I was the guy who came up with these interesting things. So I guess three lessons. Number one, it's amazing what can get done when nobody cares who get, who, who gets credit. Number two, if your idea is good, someone else will always come in and 
take over with an unfair advantage unless you're very smart about monetizing it quickly. That's what I learned from the parachute guy. And number three, you should always solve for interesting. And solving for interesting, that's actually the name of my company, Solve for Interesting. Um, there was a guy named Herbert Simon who was one of my favorite thinkers. The guy was a Nobel laureate, father of like modern AI and computer science, uh, economist. He came up with the term satisficing, which is like a, a blend of satisfy and sufficient. Um, which is how humans before that, everyone thought humans were economically rational actors. He's, he said, no, they're not. And he said back in the seventies, uh, people were talking about the information economy and he said, no, you idiots. Economies are based on what's scarce because what's scarce is what's valuable. So we need to ask, what does information consume? And it turns out that what information consumes is our attention. And so we don't live in an information economy. We live in an attention economy. And when there are too many things to, this is in the seventies, when there are too many things to pay attention to, we pay attention to what's interesting. So I think those three lessons, number one, um, solve for interesting. Number two, someone with more power is always going to come in and take over the thing. And, um, number three, it's amazing what can get done when no one gets credit. You, you, you should write a book on, on the number three. <laughs> uh, I'm, I, I mentioned to you before we started this, I'm currently working on an idea that might help with AI in a big way. And everybody's been, some of the people I talk to are like, yeah, but how would you make money? I thought I'm like, I don't want to make money. This is just good for humans. We should put it out there. Um, some of the, I, I run a conference on digital government. It barely breaks even. It has become the world's biggest digital government conference. But I had someone come up to me last year in tears at the end of the conference. I said, what's wrong? She goes, this is the first time as a public servant, I've wanted to go back to work in three years. How do you not do that? Right? Yeah. Tell us a little bit more about that. It is called um, Forward 550. Yeah, FWD50, 450. Uh, the name, yeah. um, so forward because we're nonpartisan, so neither, neither left nor right but forward. And 50, we ask everybody to talk about three timeframes. Um, what policies would you enact in 50 days? What platforms would you build in 50 months, which is roughly an electoral term? And what society do you want in 50 years? And I think forcing people to think in those three timeframes tends to make the content much better. Um, it has really, I mean, it is the world's largest gathering of digital public servants. We've had 51 countries participate. We do it virtually and in person. Uh, and, and any, uh, public servant from regional governments like state municipal can get two passes for free. Uh, so we're for profit, but we, we try very hard to be good about that. Um, it has, uh, it has shifted from a technology conference where we used to talk about AI and, you know, blockchain and clouds and stuff to almost a culture conference where, because the problem is never the technology. The problem is the culture, but we have a huge crisis right now because the, you know, the cost of governing people is going up exponentially. If you look at the number of local public servants in the U S they have quadrupled in the time that the population has doubled. And this is always a problem. Like there's a guy named Joseph Tainter. He's a, an economist who looks at the energy of complex systems He shows that as systems get more complex, the energy required to keep them organized increases faster than the energy the system produces. And this is, he actually wrote a book called The Collapse of Civilizations. Like this is why civilizations collapse. There are solutions to it, but the public service is, and taxes and budgets are going way too fast. There are solutions. The best book I would recommend on the subject, there's a woman named Jen Palka who wrote a book called Recoding America. She's the founder of Code for America. 
and she's the um, she was the deputy CTO for the U.S. federal government under Todd Park. And she explains the problem is implementation. The problem is modularity, ownership. There's all these issues. We know how to fix these things, but we can't fix them because the systems themselves are resistant to change. And in some cases, that's a feature in government. So we started the conference really to sort of talk about those issues. Um, and it's it's helping, but it's a very hard topic for a lot of people. Usually when you, you, you know, when you talk to a business person, and i privileged enough to talk to a lot of business person, they mention this thing that every single thing that they, they start, every idea, every conference, every book that or whatever, you know, tweet they put out, um, they're selling something. You know, the underlying message is like, it's just getting monetized in, in many ways, right? You know, um, some, somebody somebody's tweeting and he got like, I don't know, pick a number, 50,000 followers or something like that. So he's just directing that towards something. He has a company, he's pitching somewhere or something like that. You're not like married to that particular idea. Why is that? Um, bad at making money? I don't know. Um, I think, I, if anything, like I don't, I've never really thought about why I share something, but I guess it is to enhance my reputation if I'm honest about it. And I don't mean that in a way, like, I think if I, if someone accused me of something on the internet right now, I think a lot of people would be like, that's not that guy. Like there's nothing better than, than having people who got your back. And so I don't have, like, I just ran Startup Fest in Montreal. We had 40 mentors show up from around the world and spend three days with thousands of founders, like literally sitting at tables. We gave them all colored lanyards. They showed up because I said, come here, it'll be good. You'll be helping founders. Yeah, I had an after party at my place and, you know, whatever. But, but like, that's a reputational thing. I don't think I can, it's not transactional. I don't think I can say, hey, because of that tweet, these people came to Montreal. But I think that we have, the only real currency of the online world is reputation. And that's going to be even more important as we have AI that can sort of flood the ring yep. with noise. So I don't know why I do stuff like that. I think I, I mean, the arrogance of thinking that I have ideas the world needs to share is, is a pretty significant hubris. But I think if anything, we are all trying to establish ourselves maybe as experts, maybe as desirable, whatever, but ultimately we're trying to establish, there's only three currencies online. There's money, there's attention, and there's reputation. And like I wrote a blog post years ago about the three currencies of the online world. Um, each of them is transactional. So I can spend money like philanthropy to improve my reputation. If I have reputation, I can use that to direct people to a product. I can use my reputation to capture attention and then I can turn that into money. Like you can do exchange rates between those three things, but those are really the three currencies that people deal with online. Yeah. Do you think at the end of the day, it comes down to values, like who you are at the at the end at the bottom? Well, I mean, like my, my mom was a microbiologist. My dad devoted his life to, you know, saving billions of people from horrible diseases like malaria. I, I hope I'm doing some of that. I think as a species... I just wish that we would actually, like, we don't have a single leader who's willing to say, hey, the world is screwed up. We've, we've cooked it. Like, we got to fix stuff. And part of that is they're so worried about the next election cycle. Nobody's willing to just go, we're kind of screwed as a species unless we get our act together. And like, every day that we wait, we have less resources. And this should not be like a zero-sum game, let's see who's left, you know, which bunker ends up being in charge. We should be able to fix these things. Like, here's a good example. I was having a discussion with somebody on Facebook, which I should never do. Um, and they were like, oh, we need rent controls. Rent control turns out to be a horrible economic problem for a ton of reasons. It's very well researched. It's one of the few things all economists agree on. Meanwhile, 
we have a whole bunch of malls that are empty. And the owners of those malls don't want to admit that nobody goes to the mall. Those malls have giant parking lots, lots of shared infrastructure. They have easy access. We could turn malls into collective housing. People are not living in the same nuclear family model anymore. Why don't we turn malls into houses that have shared workshops and shared resources? Put the, you know, cover the parking lots with solar to power them. That's a pretty good option. Put some gardens out there. But nobody's thinking about that. And that seems like a really good solution. One of my favorite examples of this, because we have a coordination problem, and Liv Bowery, who is an amazing science explainer, has talked a lot about the problem of coordination. Like no country wants to have um, its own army. We'd all ra- Every country would rather spend that money on itself than having an army, but everybody needs an army because everyone might attack, right? So these are called coordination problems. We have, as a species, the tools to coordinate our behavior in good ways if we change the incentives, but we are not doing that for a bunch of complicated reasons. And uh, I gave a talk at Forward 50 last year. Um, we've only had 50 years since the internet came along and the advent, advent of deterministic software, software that you know has predictable outputs. We've got about a year in this new world of non-deterministic software where we don't know what it's gonna output, generative AI and stuff. But if you look at the printing press, you can draw a straight line from the printing press to 400 years later, the, the French Revolution and the replacement of the monarchy, which was divine rule, with the republic, which is kind of the basis for modern government. Anybody who thinks that the way humans govern themselves in 100 years time will be similar to today is not paying attention. Like our government in 100 years time will be as unrecognizable from what it is now as what we have today is from the printing press. If you believe that the internet's a bigger technological advancement than the printing press, and I would argue it obviously is. So we're trying to figure out what to do. And unfortunately, we're not sitting down. We don't have leaders who are like, this is the truth. Here are the facts. This is the problems we face. These are the things that we're going to have to do. And this is what we get if we do it right. And I just wish someone like that would show up. Do you think in the near future or in far future, somebody will like that will come up? Well, it's either that or revolutions. Like there's only two ways that the world changes culture or revolution. Right. And so we can make a cultural, I'd much rather, there's a lot less bloodshed and starvation in a cultural revolution. But, but I think usually it's the revolutions. Usually. Oh, history shows that, you know, hundred year peace. And I'm saying peace in air quotes because there's people in Ukraine and there's people in India that are dying of wet bulb heat and people in Ukraine getting blown up by drones. But the, this idea of like the global peace, at least since feudalism, it's a fiction that humans are a peaceful species. Most advances have been made through huge violence. It's just, we should be able to figure that stuff out and realize it's, we're the first self-aware creature, as far as we can tell, that can like communicate speculatively. Language lets us talk about what might be. That's the thing that we have that nobody else has, is we can like think collectively with language and then talk about what might be. We just don't have enough people talking about what might be good because nobody wants to give up their, you know, plastic container Uber Eats delivery at home or their one day shop Amazon box. And unfortunately that's the system, you know, the best system we have for figuring out how to efficiently allocate resources is, is capital. It's money. And and so I don't have an answer for this. I'm trying to bring together people who might. A lot, a lot of the things that you, you're, you're mentioning is just like, oh, wow. Okay. So so much knowledge coming to. So I uh, was so happy to learn much as I can. Yeah. ADHD is a really tough, I'm, I'm very lucky that my mom 
taught me how to deal with my ADHD properly. How do you deal with that? I have a few simple mechanisms. Like my list of things to do changes constantly. Um, You know, one day it's organized by priority, then by task type. But I will say there's one thing I learned that was very profound. Um, I kind of, I spent a lot of time reflecting on these things. Um, The thing I would say to anybody who's listening that struggles with procrastination, ADHD, and task completion. And let me preface this by saying, I am not a doctor and I'm not your doctor and you should probably ask someone else. I needed to learn how to trust future me. What I mean by that is like at any given time, there's a task I'm working on. Like I'm working on Startup Fest, but I'm also thinking about Just Evil Enough, the book I'm writing with Emily Ross. Uh, I'm also thinking about how to fix AI. I'm thinking about, you know, the challenges of late stage capitalism and what might replace it with syndicated democracy. I'm thinking about all kinds of things, you know, stuff I want to build for my house. And anytime I'm working on one thing, there's these voices in my head telling me about the other things. Hey, while you're doing this, there's a meeting you have later today. Maybe you should be getting ready for it. You're doing a podcast on Product Circle. Maybe you should be getting ready for it, right? So there's constantly five other things reminding me I'm not doing them. Now, some people are control freaks. I'm probably a control freak, but they're control freaks in the sense of, it won't be good enough unless I do it. I think that my type of ADHD, I'm a control freak in that current me doesn't trust future me to do a good job. So what's happening is my brain is like, hey, you should be working on that digital government conference while I'm writing a book. And that makes it harder to concentrate on writing the book. It's interrupting me. And I need to go, what you're really saying is that future me won't be able to work on that digital government conference as well as current me can. So that's a kind of arrogance not just arrogance like I can handle it better than others. That's an arrogance like present me can handle it better than future me. So I just keep telling myself, you got to trust future you. And like, that's a mantra that really helps me focus is trust future you. Do the thing you're here to do now. Future you's got that other stuff. And if you don't think that, you got a problem with future you. You need to think about that a little bit. Okay. So um, one thing that I heard you, you know, from, uh, by mentioning all the things that you're mentioning, how often do you self-reflect? Because my idea is that somebody who's thinking about generative AI, somebody who's thinking about saving the world, improving policies, this and that, like, this is like not one particular way of thinking. So you're thinking about this thing, that thing, that, so a hundred different things. And that does not come unless you sit down, reflect on how you spend your time. How often did you do a self-reflection thing? I would say I don't do it nearly enough. Um, part of that is because I reflect by thinking and speaking out loud, uh, much to the disappointment of my friends and my partner who has to listen to me. She's pretty tolerant. Um, she's an entrepreneur in her own right and and crazy smart. She has also like, she runs a company called Lumo Play, which is, you know, when you go to the mall and those fish swim on the floor in a projection and you walk through and the fish swim away, that's her company. Um, she's also writing a book and she taught herself puppetry and she's just crazy talented. So, you know, I have to deal with, she has to deal with me doing that. Some of my co-authors as well. Um, I'm trying to pattern match. It's not self-reflection. Once you are lucky enough to encounter a large number of ideas, you inevitably start looking for the commonalities between them. Uh, My favorite author, science historian in the world is a guy named James Burke. Um, Many of the listeners may have seen that video clip of the best timed shot on the, in television where this guy explains how rockets work and then points. And as he does, one of the Apollo... Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. That's James Burke. He had a TV show called Connections. And this is a side note, but James Burke is an amazing guy. He's now 80 years old. 
I got to meet him. Um, and then I introduced him to my friend, David McCraney and, um, David, along with, uh, the guy behind you are not so smart and some other people, James is releasing a new episode of connections like this year, we convinced him to make a new season. No kidding. Yeah. It's coming out this year. So that was a fun project. Um, James's whole thesis is that things advance because of connections. There's actually this, I think he was like Ukrainian guy, um, maybe Azerbaijani, uh, who invented a system called TRIZ, T-R-I-Z, uh, which is an innovation system. And he says all innovations start with a contradiction that gets resolved. So let's say you have a product and you want to make it more powerful, but also lighter. That's a contradiction, right? More power implies heavier, lighter implies less powerful. How do you resolve the contradiction? Or, you know, easier to use, but more serviceable or whatever, like those, like, and he says, and he's made this grid of like 40 by 40 contradictions. And he says, okay, here are the methods. So like to resolve this contradiction, there's three methods. One of them would be modularity or something. And, um, I think that all his, the, the Tris thesis, and I think this is very in alignment with what James Burke said is that you find a contradiction and innovation happens by overcoming that contradiction, but that pattern exists across many industries. So you might go and look at, we have an example in just evil enough of uh, formula one pit crews and how they do tire changes. And there's a doctor who went and learned from them and applied it to surgery to improve like the efficiency of operating rooms and improve patient lives. So I think once you are lucky enough to talk across a variety of domains, you start seeing patterns that are sort of archetypes that you can apply. And then the, the, you know, most innovation is not gen genuine, like real research. It's just the combination of two different things. One of my favorite examples is Netflix. Um, Netflix repurposed the, the U S postal service. So when, when Netflix started out, broadband was not fast enough to stream video to enough households. But it turns out that if you take a DVD, which contains 4.2 gigabytes of data, and you stick it in the post over two days, U.S. Postal First Class Service, you're getting around 235 kilobits per second. Well, 235 kilobits per second, because I did the math because I'm a jerk, um, mm -hmm. is actually faster than a dial-up modem, right? So Netflix repurposed the U.S. Postal Service to turn it into a broadband network that by law could reach every single house in U.S. That's why they won. It's not because like nobody knows this, but Blockbuster had streaming before Netflix. I did not know the maths behind that. The Netflix Blockbuster is making money off late fees and candy sold in stores, right? So Netflix and and it got so successful that they actually had to ban the DVD people from management meetings so that that would die, so that people would switch to the streaming. So like that's a great example of repurposing something. And one of the things in this book that Emily and I are writing is we have these tactics like repurposing. We've analyzed about 300 case studies from throughout history, but going back as far as like Genghis Khan or Dieu la Dieu Martins or all these other, all the way up to modern technology and innovation. And there are like 10 tactics that they all, that people always seem to use bait and switch, repurposing, um, access, arbitrage that stand out as like these mechanisms you can use to find an unfair advantage in your target market. And we're trying to sort of synthesize these into very tactical, full of great stories, but very tactical lessons that an entrepreneur can use to find their advantage. Speaking about that book, so um, let, let's talk about that. What's the main idea behind 
digestible enough and why anybody should read it well everyone should read it because i'm brilliant but but yeah <laughs> the title of the book is a trap we're not actually saying be evil we are saying you got to capture attention and so the title of the book captures your attention whoa evil enough what does that mean right like that's intentional the reality is that if you want to innovate, you have to subvert the norms of an industry. The rules of any industry were created by the people who are dominant in that industry. And those rules, some of them are laws and you shouldn't break those, but other ones are just norms or traditional ways of doing it. So what can you go in and change that will give you an unfair advantage? And so the, the simplest way to put this is that you have to have a subversive marketing mindset. Subvert just means get the system to behave in a way it was not intended, right? Like Netflix using the postal service in a way it wasn't intended as a substitute for a broadband network. And there's a lot of sort of, you know, hacker mentality in this, but we draw a big distinction between growth hacking, which is like incremental small improvements that apply to everyone and subversive go-to-market strategies where you are changing the rules of the game in a way that give you an advantage that puts your competitors on their heel. We call that being just evil enough. Okay. You mentioned um, Formula One and operations, uh, you know, a, a surgeon or something like that. What's the... What's the so, I mean, I, like? I can give you tons of tons of examples. Uh, like, for example, bluffing. We don't talk about bluffing much, but we probably should. So, Dula Du Martins was this woman who was... was running a besieged castle because her okay. husband was away in like the 1400s and they were running out of food and the, and the enemy army was outside. So she gathered up all the remaining flour in the castle and baked some bread and threw loaves out to the besieging army saying, you guys look hungry, have some bread. And they left. Like the coat of arms of this town is a bread loaf. And nobody talks about bluffing. Bluffing is a pretty important strategy, right? Yeah. But we don't talk about it. We're like, oh no, you got a product market fit. Uh, one of the big ideas in the book is this. I talked earlier about product market fit. We omit the medium. We believe that you should talk about product medium market fit. The medium represents the channels, the platforms, everything between you and the customer. And as I mentioned earlier, we now live in this world where the channel is everything. It's how you capture attention. It's how you take payment. It's how you deliver the product. It's how you offer support. It's how you retain the customer. It's how they share the thing with others. The medium is so much more these days. We're still behaving. Most marketers are still behaving like the medium is a broadcast network. You go on LinkedIn and you post something. That's, you know, very newspapers. <laughs> newspapers are one way, one to many expensive. We live in an anycast world where anyone can send anything to anyone else. But we haven't really thought through marketing. I mean, yeah, okay, you have a community manager. You have a head of growth. But when you look at product market fit, well, you could have two companies that have the same product selling to the same market, and one does way better. Why? Because they've got medium fit. Their product works really well on a certain medium, or they're really good at that medium. We kind of overlook that. Like, if you're judging startups, you should be asking not just, do you have a good product, or are you targeting a lucrative, reachable target market, but also is the mechanism that you are going to capture attention and turn it into profitable demand well-defined for a particular medium? That's a question almost no investor asks that everyone should. Almost six years ago, I was, um, I was working on, a, on an oil rig in, in the Middle East. And I had, uh, I had a manager, he was um, Sri Lankan at that time. 
um and then he mentioned one thing and we were thinking we were just like thinking about going to tech or something and like that like career switching thing and this and that and one thing that i was talking to him was uh product market fit and then he brought this this point similar to this one and i n- never heard reheard the same term somebody said that he was like i think it should be not an mvp like not minimum viable product it should be minimum marketable product so yeah like, what do you mean by that he was like so viable means and then then i actually you know um but you, you actually know him so you know uh lenny oh yeah sure lenny from year one labs yeah yeah year one labs and he he had this this podcast where he invites you know big product leaders and then uh he had somebody from webflow team and he was talking about minimum lovable product like you know people fell in love they were, they were talking about threads by instagram uh, meta whatever um so um going back to the old story and then i was like what do you mean by minimum marketable product he was like nobody gives a damn about what viable is what viable not is if it's marketable if it's able to sell if it's able to capture user able to well it has to also delight the user i mean steve jobs had that line about um you know insanely great uh, april dunford talks about obviously awesome um i think that the reason people share stuff and this is a very like low level reptile brain kind of thing we share things because we're a social species and we want the approval of our tribe so people share a thing because they want their peers to think more of them for sharing it. Like I'll give you an example of this. Um, if I can tell you something where you're instantly ashamed that you didn't know, like I tell you something obvious, you are wired to go and tell as many other people as possible quickly so that you don't lose the approval of your tribe. Like, like there's currency. If I tell you, you know, there's a meteor that's about to hit the earth in four days and you go, oh my God, I need to tell everyone right away. One of the reasons, I mean, other than saying goodbye to your friends, sorry, this got dark fast. One of the reasons for doing that is you want to be the bringer of knowledge because you'll gain social currency from bringing valuable knowledge to the group. And I think we undersell, we undersell that online when, when Steve Jobs said insanely great. It's like things that you feel compelled to show others because you feel dumb for not having seen them first. That's a mechanism we don't exploit enough, right? And, and so a lot of the book talks about cognitive science and it talks about, um, the, the, the line from attention to relevance, to fluency, to action, and that we have a ton of new psychology, um, and, and neuroscience research that changes everything about whether we think humans are rational, how information flows. We have an updated marketing for most of it. I have a very dumb question to ask you, like, like really low level dumb question. Usually, you know, when, when you go to high level universities, you could go to McGill, you could go to Harvard, like you could go like wherever you want in the world. And when you talk about marketing, it's exactly the same crap that's, you know, that's been taught out to like everybody. It's just like, yeah, okay, you know, you need to run the Facebook ad. You just need to share the message on LinkedIn and sure. stuff like that. But the more I listen to you, the more I, you know, understand the concept behind the book, the more I, you know, uh, understand like why you, you wrote this book and stuff like that. It, it feels to me that marketing is more of a psychology thing. This is more of a cognitive bias. It's, it has more to do with the brain, with the behavior than to just like, compared to like just running marketing is the art and science of changing human behavior yeah but people don't teach it that way of course right i mean i i had an amazing teacher tony Schellink, who was the only non-tenured teacher at my university he was the only one that had a job he's still running a consulting company in his 70s he understood that he was amazing but 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 not widespread right no i had people who just taught the same slides over and over so you do need a foundation right there's the sort of being a functional 
business person. You need to understand accounting and you need to understand ledgers. Um, I talk about Ansoff's matrix and the Bass diffusion curve and Porter's five forces. Yeah, I learned all that in business school, but like that's block and tackle stuff. That's just the the language library that allows business people to communicate. Once the the thing that Just Evil Enough recognizes is that if you do the same thing as everyone else, then you have the same advantage and it's just competing on a level playing field. Only an idiot plays a game on a level playing field. So find a reason why you have an unfair advantage and then lean the hell into that. Like, and, and it can be massive. Here's an example. Ikea. For hundreds of years, the way that you bought furniture was you, if you were rich enough, you called up someone and you said what furniture you'd like. And it had like, please put a secret shelf in or broider it with this or whatever, you know, put my family's initials in the corners. And then a few months later, it showed up and people brought it in your house. You go to places like Amsterdam and these hooks hanging out from the buildings to crank all the furniture up, right? Ikea was like, let's look at the value chain of furniture. And let's not just like make it more efficient or make our furniture better. Let's change the value chain. Let's Let's change who does a function or the order in which things happen or who pays. That's different from value chain analysis, which is what Porter said. That's value chain disruption. So Ikea said, what if we get the customer to build the furniture? And then they went, okay, what are all the consequences of that? Well, one thing is we would need to invent some fixtures that allowed the average person with a screwdriver and an Allen key to build something. Another thing is we'd have to create really good showrooms so you could see what these things looked like. Another thing is we'd need to figure out how to standardize the flat packing of these things so they fit within a typical car and so on, right? But there was this one idea of I'm going to disrupt a value chain and then work back from that. And that was a strategy for how to win. I don't see enough organizations thinking like that. Tesla's done a great job. They realized that the supercharger network was instrumental, right? Tesla's wouldn't work without the supercharger network. That's the really valuable thing. I mean, the Tesla software on the car is great, but it's the whole package. And I don't think people take a really big look at something and then go, what is the impediment? In fact, that's one of the things that Elon Musk does really well. He's like SpaceX. Yeah. The problem is the cost of launch. It's gone down dramatically because of rocket reuse. So look at a problem, find the root cause. What's the one thing that would produce the most outcomes and then work back from that. That's the kind of thinking that we need more of in entrepreneurship instead of like, Ooh, I've got a million followers. I can create a community and monetize. What's your opinion or what's your take on venture-backed startups? Venture is a very useful financial instrument. So is patronage, like Patreon or Kickstarter. So is banking. The The answer is very simple. Um, if you have a source of revenue that exceeds the cost of interest, you should borrow money. If you have a source of revenue that's uncertain, uh, but may result in a great payoff, you go for venture. And it's just a simple economic equation. There's a lot of people out there that should not be looking for venture backing, especially with current costs. They should be looking for um, loans. I think convertible debts and safe documents are a good compromise because it's like loans that turn into um, equity. Um, I also think that we need to look at the way we incentivize founders and and board members. Um, I'm a big proponent of things like um, give everybody options, including the founders. Because then when one of your founders has a crisis or changes their mind, you don't have to claw back their shares. They didn't earn as much. So we, we, we need to, we need to change the, the structure. But I also, I had this conversation last week, I had uh, three, four VCs on stage and they were like, 
we ask all of our founders to um, vest over time so that they have to earn their money. And I said, well, should the investors vest over time? Oh, no, no, we gave you money. I'm like, yeah, but you promised me that you're also giving me lawyers and recruiters and all these other things. So if you don't follow through, how about how I said to them, how would you feel if you got 20% of the company, but you only get 15% of the shares and the other 5% are contingent on you doing all the things you said you was an investor. And they're like, oh, no, 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 no. I'm like, it's a little disingenuous to say that when you tell the founders they can't have their shares. So I think we could we could do with some restructuring. But in general, I think the venture model is very useful. Um, I'm a big fan of a company called Georgian. They used to be called Georgian Partners, one of Canada's leading tech firms. They see themselves as a financial services company. They have data sciences in-house. They do things like implementing differential privacy in the companies they invest in. But they do like six investments a year. I mean, 40 or $50 million investments. But they see themselves as a fintech company that happens to be in the investment business. I'd like to see more of those. That that's a totally different approach than than most VCs have today. Like that's a very different approach to. If you're a bank, your business model is pretty clear. If you're a venture capital firm, your job is to you, to amortize a different risk profile, so that limited partners can put part of their portfolio into high risk, and they can diversify their portfolio. People should understand what those reasons for existing are. So I want to ask you a question. How did you get from an oil rig to doing this? I was um, studying material science and engineering, like advanced materials. So I, you could talk to me back then, like 10 years, 15 years ago. You could ask me all about nuclear materials or this and that. Like I would know a whole lot of things about that. But it was, I think, uh, so for more years in my university when I started a first company. Three months later, shut down. Started another one. Two months later, shut down. Started a third one while studying uh, that was a media sciences or something, uh, sorry, media technology company. Uh, we did enough to break even and then shut it down because the, one of the founder left. And then um, I graduated after, right after that and I was like, okay, so just need to find a job. Couldn't find a job. Uh, and I was like, okay, so this is like tough because uh, 2013, 2014 was a time when oil crisis was about to hit the market. Uh, and fortunate enough to get a job at Halliburton uh, in Abu Dhabi, so one of the oil rig. So they were like, "Yeah, okay, come, come here." That was a funny life, you could say that. So it's just like you know, you, you spend three months on the rig, three months off the rig, so that kind of stuff. You you live in a container, offshore, that kind of stuff. Um, and they were, you know, laying people off. So there was a time when they they laid, I don't know, half a million people or something like that, like globally, off. And then uh, what they did was. One out of three people will stay and the other two will leave. So that was the the ratio that we figured it out. Obviously, nobody told us. And then uh, they, they transferred me to their tech, um, what do you call that? Department, like tech tech department. So Halliburton has a huge tech department. The people usually don't know that. Shalom Budget has the same. So they, they build like massive, massive products. Uh, and then they just, you know, moved me there. That was a time when I was getting a degree in project management and product management. So I was getting a master's in both of them. Uh, the moment I got them, they transferred me to to you know one of the products and we did, uh, it's now called as I think, G was petrophysics or something like that. So we just you know rebuilt the whole product. So that was the thing. Uh, and then I started working with, left that job, started working with somebody in, in Phoenix, Arizona, we were building uh, a presidential campaign, some sort of software, which is a story for another day. But and, and then eventually moved to uh, North Carolina, and then you know started working with uh, 
previous company, previous, you know, uh, co-founder. So we started this company, which was a supply chain fulfillment analytics product. So that's what we were doing. One of the person I met, um, and it's funny, he's going to be a guest on, on the podcast in, the, in a few weeks' time. And then I, I met him, and we were doing that um, pre-seed, and then I, I talked to him, and he was like, you know, one of the three founders, why are you talking to people on Twitter? Just, you know, I was like, because I like meeting new people. And then he just jokingly said that, you should start a podcast. I was like, okay, about what? And he was like, um, what do you think is, is the biggest problem that you could solve at this point in time? I was like, I think uh, if, if I go back as a first-time founder, I made a whole lot of mistakes. Like a whole lot of mistakes. Well, like you've company. got three first-time founding. So tell me why yeah. each of those three died. Uh, yeah, so the first one was, um, I did not even know that was a company thing. So the, the first one was like, okay, we're going to teach people how to get into university by taking um, courses or like whatever. So how to get into the engineering university. And I was like, okay, yeah, cool, let's do that. And um, at that point in time, courses were not like as popular as they are today. Didn't figure out how to market that. And that's why I asked the question about uh, if you figured out the distribution or marketing, you could, you could do that. So build a course and had nobody to sell it to. And then, so, so that one died that way. The, the second one that we, we started was around the same ad tech thing. And it was more like, um, so people could go to any universities, but they need to figure out like which university should pick. Because in, in Pakistan, there's like millions of universities that you could, you could go to. So that, that was the thing. And I was like, oh, okay, so just need to figure out like which one to go to. And we, we kind of built uh, Airbnb or universities and stuff like that. But at that point in time, um, venture thing was like, pretty much non-existent in Pakistan. We couldn't figure out like how to fund that thing. So we built a, you know, a system, went to some accelerators here and there and nobody was like, no, like we already have 50 times the influx of a student we could take. So we obviously not going to, you know, partner up with some the program. So that one died pretty quickly. The third one was, so I got my first job as a lead designer in a production house. I was still studying. So that was a part-time gig. And I was like, okay, so I could design things really well. Um, partnered up with somebody who was doing marketing. So it's like, okay, let's just start selling something. So we, you know, we just kind of built that five, six people team, um, started selling this thing. Okay. So you, you own a restaurant, we're going to redesign your whole thing, the menu, the this and that and stuff like that. And we can charge you. And then six months later, we just, uh, went into that. We were profitable. You could say that barely profitable, but at the same time we were like, ah, okay, this is not working out because, you know, it's just hard to find leads did not know how to sell, and then um, couldn't figure out like how to productize the services. That's the biggest problem I think that we, we had. So yeah, that was three things that we had a problem with. So in the first one, you kind of had the build it and they will come delusion. If we make this thing, people will, will use it. Yeah, it, yeah, it was more like, you know, something that you said at the beginning, like I have a cool idea and my idea is like the best in the world. That 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 was the thing. Yeah, so build it and they will come as a fallacy. And the second one, it sounds like you were trying to become a middleman in a market that didn't justify the middleman existing, like a two-sided marketplace, right? Yeah, exactly like that. And and they were like, yeah, yeah, we already have the access to all the students. Like, why would we pay somebody to do that? So you need to justify your existence as a middleman. And then the third case, you were a, a design services company and it's hard to scale that without humans because you didn't really have a product. So um, if you had to start a company now, what, what would, how would you go about figuring out what problem to tackle based on the fact that you don't want to do build it and they will come, 
if you're a marketplace, you want to justify your existence and you need to be able to scale without human services. What would that, what kind of businesses, how would you go about figuring out a new business? If gun to your head, getting a business plan in 48 hours, what do you, what would you go do? So one thing that, um, I would do differently, I think I should do differently was, um, I, I had this, this weird, um, sentence that I would call that, like whatever you, it's just like, don't get married to an idea. I think in all, all of these three times I was kind of, oh no, this is it. This is it. Like, you're going to pay for it or not, but this is it. So that was the idea. So the first thing that I would do is exactly the same thing that I would double down on Twitter, LinkedIn, newsletter stuff, start, you know, do the podcasting, build the community pretty like pretty wide, big community. But a community for what? I mean, how would you decide what your community was about? Is it a passion for you or is it, you know, you go look at the world, the UN's data on demographics and figure that out? Like, where would you go figure out what industry to, how do you find that intersection of things you care about, things you can make money for, and things that are going to be um, growing in a way that allows you to find an opportunity? It's a hard question, honestly speaking. Um, don't know if I have the answer to it right away, but the way that I, I would think, or at least I would imagine, is uh, building an audience is about like learning as much of their problem as, as possible. So, you know, so suppose I have an audience of, I don't know, 10, 20,000 people, and I know like, okay, everybody's talking about one particular problem. Could be anything, uh, but they're talking about one particular problem. And then it'll be more like, okay, am I passionate about that or not? So how many people do you have listening to Product Circle? Um, Product Circle, so we crossed 10,000 views across all the platforms. Um, but then again, 10,000 people across all the platform does not mean... Yeah, but you have more than 100 people. So if there's one thing you would like everybody listening to this podcast right here, right now, yeah. if you're listening to this, yeah. you know, this is your call to action. In the comments for this, or send a message, what what one question would you like them to answer for you right now? You can pause and we can restart this, but like, you, we're going to ask one question in this podcast, and I think you should do this from now on. You have an audience. We've been talking about audiences, right? I think that every episode, you should ask the audience a question to help you figure out what your startup should be. So what question right now in this podcast at this moment, Alistair and Mudasir are saying, we have a question for you. And if you found this valuable, don't like, and subscribe in the comments, provide the answer to the following question. What is that question? So I, um, sometimes I have this, this, this feeling that I would want to create a marketplace. I'm going to bug you about this. What's the question? What's the thing you do when you wake up in the morning? What's the thing that most annoys you about cars? Um, if you had a hundred bucks right now, what would you spend it on? Find a question. What's a question that will help you? Un yeah. I want you to ask your audience a question. You have a hundred, you have, you have thousands of people that might listen to this. What question do you want them to answer for you? So one question that I would ask everybody is what's the thing that they look forward to every, every morning? And no, I'm going to, I'm going to ask this, the same thing again. Why you do whatever you're doing every morning when you get up? Like why, like what's your reason of doing whatever you're doing. So everybody has a morning routine. Everybody has a morning routine. And and so people look so, forward to So I guess the, the question is, but, but you can predict that most people like brush their teeth and have breakfast. So what is, so how about a better question is, what's the one unusual thing that you do every morning that you think nobody else does? I mean, because you can predict them. What's the unpredictable? We want to find the outside things. Because if it turns out 
that a whole bunch of people do a thing they think is unpredictable, but they're all doing it. That's interesting. My challenge to you, Madasir, is every single one of these from now on, you're going to talk to the person you're interviewing about a question, and then you're going to ask the question, and you're going to get all of the people who listen to Product Circle to give you an answer. And then maybe in there, you'll find a solution. Thank you for coming on my podcast. No, thank you for that. I was like, uh, all of a sudden, it was like very uncomfortable. Oh my, okay. So I need to answer the question. Yeah, well, you know, now you know how I feel. So, so when it comes to, you know, building business and stuff like that, like what if I don't want to start another startup? Then go work for a good one. I mean, you know, there's a famous saying that there's a, there, you know, you know about the BCG box? This is another thing you get from boring business school, the Boston Consulting Group Matrix. So the Boston Consulting Group Matrix is a two by two graph, because a two chart, because everybody loves two by two charts. And it has... Um, fast growth, slow growth, big market, small market. So if you're seeing fast growth in a big market, that's amazing, right? That's a star. If you're seeing slow growth in a big market, that's a cash cow. If you're seeing fast growth in a small market, that's a question mark. Slow growth in a small market is a dog. And apologies to people who love dogs like me, but you take the dogs out and you shoot them or sell them off. Everybody talks about startups. Startups are question marks and they want to try and figure out how to get their question mark into a star, meaning you want to try and figure it out attached to a growing market. But if you're in a slow growth market and you have a very large market share, you're a cash cow. Most of the money in the world is made by milking cash cows. We wouldn't have food on our plates or car- gas in our cars or TVs that worked if there weren't most of the workforce milking the cash cow. And so I think that milking the cash cow is an underappreciated skill. You can milk a cash cow. You can have a very good life. You can earn some money. You can buy a boat and retire and all that kind of stuff with a pension. I think we have um, glorified the startup world so much. We've overlooked the fact that just, you know, being a reliable, predictable operator, finding efficiencies in slow growing markets with large market share is a very good job. And unfortunately, we increasingly use trickery for that. Like many companies that become big, this is what Cory Doctorow calls the inshitification of social media. We start to abuse our customers. We try to, you know, this is telcos trapping you into egregious contracts. This is banks that are giving you all kinds of service fees and selling your data. There's something very valuable about just delivering a good product consistently to a market that needs it. And I think we've overlooked that. And I, I believe that especially in an era of social media where people get called out for this, we're going to see the rise of respect for people who just deliver a good product that has good value to a market that likes it repeatedly. And there's something very important about that. I think that we need to, so, so if you, if you want to start a startup, you have to be comfortable with a high level of uncertainty. That's the kind of money you're attracting. And it's also the kind of lifestyle you're taking. So part, I've always said that the people that can start a startup either can afford to lose everything or have nothing to lose. We had a session at uh, Startup Fest a few years ago, um, something we call a chain reaction panel, which is a great format for panel discussions. Instead of like five panelists on stage, it's the first person interviews the second, and then the first person leaves the stage, and the second interviews the third, the third interviews the fourth, and then at the end, like the fourth, fourth person interviews the, the first person. So it's like a circle. And everybody, it's like a little seven minute conversation. They work really, really well for online events as well. And the title of the, the, the session was street smart entrepreneurship. By the time we were done, it came down to, do you need to come from a broken home to found a company? Which you don't know where the conversation is going to go, but 
the people who are suited for startups can either afford to lose everything because they have like a trust fund or they're a rich white dude or whatever, or or they're young and you know if they lose everything they can still earn stuff later on, or uh, they um, have nothing to lose, meaning like they're not they don't have a, a guaranteed future anyway, so they may as well. And in both of those cases, um, they're motivated to do stuff. But I mean, statistically, the success rate of immigrant-founded startups is way higher. The success rate of women-founded startups is way higher. There's a lot of arbitrage to be done simply saying who's most motivated and who is underutilized. If you had, imagine that we treated chess clubs like football clubs, right? So in a football club at school, only half the team can play because football is a men's sport for some dumb reason. Well, American football. And in like the math club, you just want to take all hundred students in your class and in the school and see who's best. Imagine if you only choose from your math club, 50% of your students. Clearly you're leaving behind the other 50% that could be great. I'd rather draw from all hundred of them, right? So I think that um, the more we can do to create diversity, the more that we can do to help people take those risks, um, the more we're going to see the best players take those roles. And the people that are going to be best for that are those who either can afford to lose everything or have nothing to lose. Um, statistically speaking, they're probably better investments for founders. So I think a lot of this has to do, I mean, the I can afford to lose everything is a privilege thing. Um, and the has nothing to lose is an opportunity thing. But I think that people who are funding or starting companies need to look at themselves and say, am I willing to lose all of this the same way that the VC is? Because otherwise you shouldn't be taking VC money. Like VCs expect an outcome and they expect an outcome that is like a hundred X all the other startups they've invested in just to pay for the losses of all the other startups. Like Lean Analytics has sold a hundred thousand books in China alone. Ed and I don't make that much money off it. We get 16% royalties and that's only because we've sold a certain number of books, which we split two ways, right? But O'Reilly gets to keep most of that money because they're paying for all the books that didn't do well. And that's just how the game is played. Exactly. Speaking of, you know, startups and then, you know, growing them or something. One of the things that I just uh, found out was you had an impressive run with year one labs. Like, you know, that was like what, 300? And- we had one year. That was kind of the point. It was an experiment. But yes, it was a great, at the time, I think we had the highest IRR of any Canadian accelerator or startup or, or a VC. So Year One Labs was an idea that Ray Look, who's an amazing, if you're not following Raymond Look on on LinkedIn, you should be. He's one of the smartest people I know about pitches out there. Um, ben Yoskovitz, who's my co-author, and the guy named Ian Ray, who founded Cloud Ops. He recently found, had a great liquidity event for that. Super smart guy. Um, so the four of us decided to start this accelerator, um, but it was a very different economic model. It was uh, 50K per startup for a pair of founders for a year. Now in Montreal at that time you could live on 25k basically ramen budget living in a you know come to the office we'll give you broadband and a desk you're paying for a computer and ramen soup and that's a year of your life but we felt and I continue to feel that most accelerators when they give you 90 days that's enough time to figure out how to pitch what you've already thought of and the lean startup model is like get out of the building and go and research things and figure it out every one of the five companies changed its business model and so we had five companies in each one of them gets 50k um, we, I think we gated it. So you got 10 K to figure out your business, what you're going to do 20 K to build it and 20 K to go raise money. You can take a whole year. The year one labs referred to it's your first year of a startup, but it was all built on the lean startup model. Uh, Lenny Richitsky came in, didn't really have ideas. In fact, I think the local mind idea was Ben and Ray coming up with it. 
brought in this friend of his beau. The two of them started the company. They brought in a guy, Nelson, who is an amazingly smart coder, but he just worked for free initially. And they built this app that lets you ask questions of a place. So you could be like, hey, Times Square, what's the weather like? And people in, like, you could ask a question and people would answer. Um, this is a marketplace problem. You need enough people on there to answer questions. So you got to ask and answer questions. One of the ways they de-risked it, like one of the first questions is, will people answer questions from a stranger? Was they geofenced New York Times Square and they would ask questions. What? Where's the Wi-Fi? What's the weather like? Where's the toilet? And surprisingly, like over 90% of people would reply. Now, the challenge with their product was not that people wouldn't reply. It was that people wouldn't ask questions. And so they're sitting around trying to figure this out. And this is the first time I said it. I said, Lenny, are you being evil enough? And he goes, I'm not evil. I said, not evil, just evil enough. And what they've decided to do was create an automated system that sent questions on your behalf initially to get the conversation going. That was their hack, right? Kind of cool. Um, they launched at South by Scoble said it was the greatest thing ever. At this point, I ceased to add any value. My great friend, Randy Smerick helped them with some of the details, but they got acquired by local mind, uh, sorry, by Airbnb. Uh, Lenny became head of, uh, supply side marketing there and growth. The rest is history. Lenny's Lenny is brilliant, but also one of the nicest people I've ever met. Like there are some people that are successful and you begrudge them that Lenny is just a wonderful human, like just a deeply wonderful, caring human. He's one of the few people where every ounce of his success he deserves. So, so the number is like you, you turn 350k into a, into a like what, 10 million? I don't know the exact numbers, but our the all the people that gave us the money were like, do more of that. So we got 350K and then 250 went 50K each. Then 100K paid some of Ben's salary and also the Wi-Fi and the rent and stuff. We used a co-working space in Montreal at, uh, on, on uh, Rigi. And um, the I think one of the companies pulled out having not spent their whole thing. They kind of decided it wasn't going to work. So we took the rest of that and put it into local mind and then they raised around. But the amount that they raised versus what they got acquired for gave us like ridiculous multiples on a very small amount of money. Technically, we had the highest IRR in Canada that year, but it was a great learning event. And, and Lean Analytics came about because we would ask them, how are you doing? And they go, great. We'd say, based on what? And they go, stuff. <laughs> and we'd say, what metric do you care about? I guess churn. Okay. How's churn doing? Good. How do you know it's good? Well, it's 14%. Like, is that good? I don't know. Ben and I realized like, you need to know your one metric that matters. You need to know the line in the sand. And all of those things came out of the experience of trying to help these companies within year one labs. I asked him, um, I asked Ben about, you know, when's the next version of Lee Analytics coming out? And then he was like, you and I, you, you and he had a lot of chats about that and you thought about that. But, uh, but yeah, when's the next version coming out? When's the updated version coming out? I had a blog and I'm long overdue for updating all my websites because I have like seven websites and I'm putting them all under alistaircroll.com. Um, but um, I had a blog called Tilt the Windmill, which was all about enterprise innovation portfolio management because a lot of big companies would pay me to come in, like DHL and Shipstead and stuff, would pay me to come in and help them with their innovation strategies. And they're different in big companies. And so um, there's this idea of innovation and Clay Christensen talked about adjacent, uh, he talked about sustaining and disruptive innovation, but I don't think you went far enough. There's really like four big tiers of innovation. There's sustaining innovation, which is like do more of the same better. There's adjacent innovation, which is where you change your product, your market, or your go-to-market method. Just one of them. 
There's disruptive innovation, which is where you actually destroy the previous model. And then there's discontinuous innovation, which is like the world will be different. So good example is sustaining innovation in cars would be next year's Mercedes-Benz has more cup holders. Um, adjacent innovation would be like the electric car because it's still sold through dealerships and it's still sold to drivers, but I changed one thing, right? Uh, it could also be like changing direct, going direct to consumer or whatever that change one of those things. Disruptive innovation is like car to go. So car to go is a rental car service owned by Mercedes that allows you to get a car on a daily basis or an hourly basis, but it fundamentally eats the existing market. If you're a car to go, I don't buy a car. And discontinuous innovation would be the self-driving car. Like we don't know what that's going to be like. I mean, we could, yeah, it could be like, I've got to go from Montreal to Boston. Give me a car with a bed in it. Right. Or I'm going to shave and do a video call on the way to work. So my calendar is different. I don't know. And so companies need to manage who they staff across those things, what metrics they use for those four things to manage a good innovation portfolio. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, Ben has been having similar thoughts because his current company, Highline Beta, helps some of the world's biggest brands build innovation studios. And so if we do something, it will probably be around that. We're both kind of busy. I got to finish just evil enough. I have like four other books that I could be writing. That's one of them, but Tilt the Windmill is one of those ideas. When When is uh, Just Evil Enough coming out? Uh, that's a long answer. Uh, I'm hoping that we will be out this year. Um, okay. The challenge with any of these things is that the publication process is very complex. Um, mm -hmm. Also, my co-author, Emily, who is a fantastic entrepreneur, um, she used to have a marketing agency called Inkvine. She's also been a circus performer and a videographer and all kinds of things. She's brilliant. Um, she is the head of Twitter next for Europe, the Middle East and Africa. And she started that role early last year. It's a very big role. She has a team of data scientists. They work with some of the world's biggest brands on things. Um, as you can imagine, there's been a lot of things going on in the last year and a half. <coughs> Excuse me. As you can imagine, there's been a lot of things going on in the last year and a half. Um, so it slowed down some of this. The other thing that happened is we were invited to create an online course for Maven which is a cohort-based learning program. And um, in doing that, it's much easier to write a book if you don't actually have to teach it to someone. So once we were asked to teach it, we are like, now we got to put the cohort together and the courses and all this stuff. And that forced us to kind of revisit a lot of the book. The challenge with any book like this is you can write an, a subjective nonfiction book that's just a bunch of opinions and prose. And those are wonderful, but they're really hard to apply. Like you can sort of bring them back to your desk. They're like a good story and they're inspiring Lean Analytics did well, partly because it was very tangible. Founders could be, I am this business model at this stage. I know what to do. And so we are trying, we have these ideas like the recon canvas, um, the ripe model. We have um, this idea of innovation, provocation, discovery as ways of finding your asymmetry. There are 10, our list of the 10 sort of asymmetric advantage archetypes, value chain disruption. There's a lot of things in there that could wind up in business textbooks. Um, and so writing a book that's fun to read but also has a lot of concrete takeaways is a real challenge. So you so don't we'll probably do it this year. We have some plans for, um, like I'm, I'm going back through it from the start right now, and then we're going to hand it to an editor. So it's, it's in good hands, but it's, okay. um, I mean, it's already like 140,000 words. So we're going to, one of the things about writing is you don't know what the book is until you write it. And then you go back and carve away the parts that weren't the book. Um, it's a weird process, but it's also exhausting. Like every time I'm like, I'm never doing this again. But I think that the, the coolest thing will be when we, we're, we have some ideas for how to put it out that are pretty subversive. 
Like you wouldn't buy a book on subversive marketing unless we were pretty subversive about how we're doing it. Um, we already have some subversive stuff on our newsletter. If people go to justevilenough.com and sign up, you'll immediately be going down some weird stuff on there. Um, but we have a bunch of plans for promoting this and, and kind of, you know, making people go, all right, you got me, but because you got me, I'm willing to read your book. There's a little bit of, you have to be a little, just a little bit naughty. Yeah. How did you get into writing? Uh, I've always, writing is an amazing tool for thinking about things. Like writing is, language is, is the way we speculate. And I think writing forces you to clarify and structure things in an ordered way. It's a prosthetic memory. Um, I don't know. I, I like, I grew up in a family of scientists. I was reading books when I was a kid. So uh, I've always liked writing stuff. My first book was, uh, I was the product manager for policy-based networking at 3Com. And um, I was asked, I got a call from Prentice Hall and they said, would you write a book for us? Uh, the managing editor of the series, who's a friend of mine, is a guy named um, Paul Macapetris, who invented a couple of things you may have heard of, uh, DNS and SMTP. Just a couple of little protocols, right? Yeah. Just I, I once joked that he's personally responsible for all the spam in the world because he invented unauthenticated mail and unauthenticated addresses. Um, super smart guy. And so I wrote that for Prentice Hall. That was pretty good. And then uh, because I started Coradient, uh, I was asked, I, I, I pr proposed and was asked to write a book on how to monitor and measure the web called Complete Web Monitoring that came out in 2008, which was like right around the start of people starting to analyze social media with a friend of mine, Sean Power. So I wrote Complete Web Monitoring with Eric Pack, uh, sorry, Managing Bandwidth with Eric Packman, Complete Web Monitoring with Sean Power, Lean Analytics with Ben Yoskovitz, and I'm writing Just Evil Enough with Emily Ross. I, I like working with another author because they keep you honest. Awesome. So, um, and so we got some, you know, just moving towards the closure of the, of the episode. Yeah, so I just got covered a lot some, of stuff. Dude. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you covered a lot of stuff. So, so had some interesting questions. I hope they're interesting. Yeah, no, this is great. I, I, I just got on here to chat, so I'm happy to talk about these things. Okay. So, uh, what was your biggest failure in business world or personal? Like what was the biggest one? I separated from my wife in 2014 and we have a 12 year old daughter and I probably could have handled that much better. It's probably the cruelest thing I've ever done. And I'm continuing to try to atone for that and, and be a good parent and a supportive co-parent co of a child. That was tough. Uh, we could have done much better at Co-Radiant if we had figured out TrueSight first. Um, I have a startup that I'm working on on the side right now that um, we should have done much more market research for beforehand. And the team that was building it did not have the oversight they needed to get clear direction. So we had to claw back a bunch of features and may have missed the market window. That's hard. Um, I ran a conference in Panama called Pandemonio that was amazing. The tagline was the smartest beach on the planet, but the person I was running it with, um, who lived in Panama at the time was not, he was very certain of demand for the conference and the demand didn't exist. It's the only conference I've lost money on, but I don't complain about that one too much because, um, I got to invite like 30 of my friends to Panama. And we had an amazing time. Uh, I got to meet Hugh Howie, the guy who, who wrote Silo, which is now that Apple TV, like he showed up at the party we threw. So I, I don't know. Um, what did... I don't know if they're failures because I learned something from every one of them, but I think that yeah. I, every one of them has made me a person that realizes what he did wrong, but I wouldn't be that person mm -hmm. if I hadn't had the failures. So I don't know. Uh, I, I'm just hoping that when I die, people say nice things at my funeral. Um, and hopefully Absolutely. I made the world a better place while I was here. hundred percent. Given the, you know, extensive knowledge of, um, cognitive biases, importance of data, 
So how do you approach personal decision making? Like what's the, what are the specific frameworks or maybe mental models do you use? <clears throat> um, okay. It's ironic that many humans, including me, mm -hmm. have great tools and frameworks for decision making, but we don't apply them to our personal lives. Part of that is that the things that have turned out to be the best in my life are the things that just seemed interesting. And, you know, if you look at the way that the human brain works, there's very good neuroscience that shows that we have made a decision often seconds before we're consciously aware of it, <clears throat> that our conscious mind, excuse me, that our conscious mind is simply telling us a retroactive story that makes sense of the world. Um, this is well-documented and it's kind of weird to think because it sort of takes away the idea of free will, but it also means that there are many, many things going on in the background that we aren't consciously aware of. You know, when you go to sleep, thinking about a problem and wake up and you have the solution, that kind of thing, or you look at a chessboard and then a day later, you know, the move, something happened. And so I think that overdoing the planning frameworks doesn't allow you to harness the part of your brain that's sort of off deliberating in private before it surfaces an idea. Um, I think that there's a, there's a framework I really like called pre-mortems. So pre-mortem and in, in, uh, forecasting, they use something called a Janus cone, which is like, look at where you are now and make a 25 years in the past, 25 years in the future. And by defining where your industry was 25 years ago, it makes you more realistic about your projections, but figure out what you want to be. Describe the world where you'd like to be in vivid detail write a plan for how to get like a, write a short fiction story, like almost write an autobiography, how you got from where you are to that. And then, um, work back from that and find out all the places where it could have gone wrong, like doing a postmortem or a, but doing it beforehand and then figure out if you can mitigate all of those things along the way, because that's probably the most rational path of like jump into the future and then walk back to the past and then make a path forward. Uh, it's really good to have a friend who will do that with you. So, um, if you sit down, uh, my friend, Randy Smerick is great at this. We'll sit down and we'll talk about stuff. I also kind of like, you know, the Persians used to do this thing where they believed you should debate any serious thing twice, once when sober and once when drunk. So you could look at it from two different perspectives. So I think anytime you're doing something significant, look at it from two perspectives because you're always lying to yourself. Yeah, absolutely. You, you mentioned probably 25, 30 people in, you know, in our like, an hour, hour and a half. What's your opinion on building a network? Because somebody who, who is like, it's amazing working in it though when nobody takes credit. Um, I couldn't build this network if I wasn't like a loud white dude who came from middle-class science parents. Let's be honest. I have the, the luxury of being able to lose money on a conference. That BitNorth thing that I run, I lose four or five grand every year, every time I do it. And I charge people, they pay a little, but I don't care. It's how I see my friends. I have a WhatsApp thread with them in it, and they're amazing, and I love those people. Just today, a friend of mine who um, is a technologist for uh, an indigenous cumulative effects organization is dealing with a situation, and he's like, I need to know how to deal with this, asked that group, and got 15 answers in like an hour, for, and really good answers, like connected to people who are world-class at the problem he's having. That's valuable. You know, good networks make their own gravy. Um, everybody feels like they're sharing, and there's some trust. Um, I think that one of the things that works about BitNorth is we get people together for 48 hours. So you see people in their bunny slippers. You see them when they're groggy and have another coffee. You see them in an unstructured environment. And I have three rules for my friends. They have to be funny and like fun to party with. And that's actually, I think that people who are intelligent are okay going off script because they know their stuff. People who are 
too rehearsed. That's like, they're not really comfortable in knowledge. So number one, they gotta be fun to party with. Number two, they gotta be smart. Like there's no room for dummies. The bandwidth, if, if someone slows down the bandwidth doesn't work. And number three, I don't have to apologize for them. Like they can apologize for themselves. If they screw up, be self-aware enough to own it, but don't make me apologize for you. If anybody breaks any of those rules, they're not really part of that network. But I think once you as an organizer of that network enforce those rules, people will trust you. I've had a few cases where someone's done something that's not cool and I call, I message them and call them out. Uh, there's a, I think it was Bertram Russell said, there's no such thing as a tall, as an, as a tolerant society because a tolerant society must be intolerant of intolerance. And so if you are trying to build a network and you're lucky enough to be the person that network trusts to convene people, you have to take on the role of curator because it's more important to retain the trust of the group than to avoid alienating one bad actor. And you have to move very fast on that. You have to let everybody in the group know that is the case. Like that's just the number one rule for maintaining a community. Otherwise, People will go, whoa, I can't be myself here. I can't be open. We had a conversation about climate change with a friend of mine who speaks for a living. And he's like, I can't have this conversation anywhere else, but I can have it here. And three other people jumped in and they started talking about data and outcomes and all this stuff. And he wound up like going to talk to the head of the IPCC. But he started with a trusted group of a few dozen people who were smart, fun to party with and didn't need to apologize. And and I didn't need to apologize for them. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, so we have this one ritual on the podcast. So what mm-hmm. we do is we ask all the guests a question for our next guest without knowing who the next guest is going to be. So we got a question for you and we're going to take a question for our next guest, but obviously not going to be part of the you know, recording. Sure. So uh, the previous guest um, had a question for you without knowing who you're going to be. Um, and, he, and his question was, one question that you wish someone had asked you in your lifetime before but never did what was that? How will you land the plane? My father was 39 when he died. I only ever got to see him take off and keep flying up. The guy had a, a BSC, master's, PhD, DSC, which comes after your PhD and nobody knows about, MD, wrote like 20 books, changed the face of modern parasitology, contributed to the saving of potentially billions of lives. Incredibly smart guy. I never saw him land the plane. Most, most lives have a takeoff, a cruising and a landing. I find myself in my late middle age, having spent very little time thinking about how I want to retire, which skills do I want to keep? Which, um, abilities do I want? What should my hobbies be? Um, where will I live? I don't think about those things because I was modeling what my father did. So I wish somebody had sat down with me earlier and said, have a plan for how to land the plane. Because I didn't have a model for that myself. And it's something I struggle with a lot now. I always thought I would like him keel over on a racquetball court at 40 40 years old. His dad died like that. He died like that. I was just like, keep going as fast as you can until you're not there anymore. And I never thought about how to land the plane. Do you think about that now? Yeah, a lot. Do you have the answer for that? No, hell no. If anybody, if there's a family office out there who wants to pay me a lot of money to think about these things so I can build my uh, bunker in the woods slash Airbnb glamping, tell me, cause I'd love to do that. Uh, no, I don't, I don't think about that, but I am surrounded by amazing people who help me in all kinds of ways. So, you know, I'll figure it out. So, uh, thank you for the episode, Alistair. 
Thank you for having me. This was uh, by far the most wide ranging and unexpected set of conversations I've had in a while, let alone on record. No, thank you so much. Yeah, it was fun, interesting, and it was a pleasure. Thank you for that. Thank you.